welcome to episode 269. Surprise, Shane. I hit the button too early. This is the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and hopefully Shane is there. We are amateur astronomers. Love looking up in the night sky. This podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. Sorry, I was a little trigger happy this morning. No worries. It, uh, it just seemed like you were raring to go. <laughs> <laughs> I just said, you started giving me a countdown, and then... The sound kind of glitched, and then you weren't giving me a countdown, so I was like, uh-oh. I'll nope. just hit We're good. We're good. Playing on tape. So, um, bit of a question answer show, kind of, sort of. Had uh, a few uh, questions that were somewhat similar. Um, the, one, the one that I received a couple times was about uh, telescope powers, mm-hmm. and then... Um, a question on field of view from uh, from Clint uh, Shane. So I thought, you know, people are asking about powers and that sort of thing. And uh, Clint was just uh, just thought maybe it would benefit uh, some of the listeners. And I think he's right about just going over a little bit of sky directions and this sort of thing. And uh, maybe what I'll do is I'll just read uh, Clint's note here first, and then we can just chat about it. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. Because I think this kind of thinking maybe this is a little bit more your bag uh, than mine. So Clint writes, uh, hi, Chris and Shane. And by the way, Clint is a longtime listener. He and I correspond um, frequently, and uh, he's got some great gear and some decent skies uh, where he lives. So um, this is like part of a ongoing uh, discussion. Like we've, this isn't like the first email we've had from Clint or anything. So always appreciate the long uh, term listeners who, uh, who provide us input on, on the show and, and perhaps what we should include. And I think he's bang on with this. Clint writes, mm. hi, Chris and Shane. It might be a full episode, but a segment on directions might be helpful for some listeners. I know you have often discussed distances or sizes in terms of degrees, but a discussion about finding objects using degrees, minutes, and seconds would be good. Then um, the cardinal directions like uh, north, south, east, and west, and how to determine the direction something is in the eyepiece um, when you're sort of comparing it to the object, okay? And then uh, I know you have mentioned some of these things in the past, but not really dedicated a segment to it. Cheers, Clint. Uh, Yes, that's exactly right. And it's funny because I don't know whether Clint just picked up on this or not. Like I said, he's a long-term listener, but I've been sort of thinking about this a little bit, but wasn't really sure how to include it in an episode. And then when a listener writes, um, then boom, there, that's that's good enough for me. Someone actually has distilled out uh, a question or, or something that I've been fooling around with in my own mind. And uh, so here we go, uh, Shane. Um, what are your thoughts on um, sizes? Uh, in terms of degrees, and then um, finding stuff using uh, degrees, minutes, uh, and seconds of arc uh, at the eyepiece. Uh, where do you want to start with this? Maybe I'll I'll just talk a little bit about my approach. Um, Should we talk about what these sizes are first? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Um, okay. Just sort of, I, I always do this because I'm like, oh, oh, like, let's just break it down really quick for maybe listeners that aren't as familiar. So, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. And I don't have this in the notes or anything. This is all just off the top of our heads. Um, so degrees, what are degrees, minutes, and seconds? What are these things exactly? Yeah, so it's it, it really is um, kind of how the right ascension is measured in the sky. Um, and 
there's you know 60 seconds in in one minute and a second represents a small slice of the sky there's 60 minutes in one degree um and one degree if you hold your finger up at arm's length is that one degree that's like a degree yeah something yeah, about like that, that. the yeah. moon is about the moon is about half a degree and then yeah, yeah and as you were probably going to say if you hold your fist up at arm's length how big is that's going to be like 10 degrees. 10 degrees. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the general stuff. So what I like to do when I'm observing is understand what field of view, I, like I usually will have a finder eyepiece, like a wider field eyepiece mm -hmm. that I'll kind of, uh, that, that probably lives in my telescope for the longest duration through an evening. You know, occasionally yeah. when I find an object, I'll play with the magnification, but when I'm searching, it's a low magnification, wide field of view. But the key, yeah. there's two keys for me. One, understand what field of view I'm getting in that particular telescope. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's one degree or three degrees or whatever it might be. Um, and then also understand a little bit of the scale of the star chart I'm using, you know, yeah. so that when I'm looking for an object, I know it's two degrees past the bright star, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if I know it's within two degrees of a bright star uh, and I have a three degree field of view, I just have to find the bright star, you know, yeah. and then I'll be able to locate the object quite easily. So I, I use it with that quite a bit. And then um, the other thing that maybe I'll chime in a little bit with um, where arc seconds, uh, and sometimes minutes, but not really, mostly just arc seconds come into play. Uh, that's when I'm doing double star observing uh, because the multiple star systems will give you the separation and it's typically in arc seconds. And that will uh, help you determine how challenging the split might be. Uh, there's other factors that go into that, but you know, the, the distance between the two stars is often uh, one of the key aspects. So if you have a, a, you know, a binary system and the separation is say one arc second, that's a real tight pair and mm -hmm. you would need, uh, you know, decent conditions and probably decent aperture to split that. Um, but you know, if it's 10 or 20 or 30 arc seconds, you know, that's starting to become a wider pair that is a little easier to split. So that's how it impacts my observing. Um, how about you? What, uh, what do you have to say about that, Chris? Yeah. I mean, uh, almost just going to reiterate exactly what you said, Shane, and that's that I, uh, you know, uh, know how many degrees my low power eyepieces are. So often in my scopes, they're around uh, three and a half degrees um, or so kind of coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, I find that is a, is a really good low power field of view. And that's just what I get is low power in the, the three uh, main scopes that I use. Um, and so because of that, I kind of get used to about where three degrees, maybe a little bit more is uh, on my star charts. So if I'm hunting for an object and I start at such and such a bright star, and this is going to be a faint object, then I know I have to move like so many fields. I, I can look and say, okay, well, these two stars are going to be about three degrees apart. That's like generally a field. And then I kind of like slowly sort of star hop my way um, across to, uh, to the object. Um, and then uh, as far as like the, the smaller um, degrees I, or smaller you know, uh, measurements like minutes and seconds. Don't really use those uh, as much really for any kind of practical purposes uh, other than, um, you know, arc seconds. If I'm looking at uh, Mars, for example, I think uh, right now it's around like 14 arc seconds or something like that. 
and it's, it's going up to uh, 17.2 for December 8th. Um, you know, then, then I, of course, I'm following along um, how big a, a planet might be uh, during, during an opposition just to mm-hmm. uh, just kind of keep it in context. And then it kind of gives you, uh, you know, a pretty good, uh, a pretty good idea of uh, what features might be visible or, or not visible. Uh, yeah. But other than that, like I'm not really using um, degrees, minutes and seconds uh, too much. Uh, you know, like I said, just basically using the degrees for finding stuff. Um, you know, particularly uh, maybe even measuring like larger objects or looking at larger objects. I'm tending to look more at the degrees, but uh, yeah, maybe sometimes if I'm sketching like a galaxy, I might be like, okay, like, but I'm just really, I'm really doing this like in a non-scientific way. I'm just really just looking at it and sketching it. And it might be, you know, 20 arc minutes across or something like that. I'm just, you know, sketching a larger galaxy and um, but I'm, I'm not, I'm never like doing a measurement of it per se. Like I know some observers, well, I know I I've shown some of my sketches to, uh, uh, I think it was my friend Dave I was showing. He's like, well, how big is the field and how big is the object? Which is, which is fine. He's, he comes from, uh, um, like a very hardcore science background. And so for somebody like that, they might be, uh, more detailed when it comes to those things, but I'm not quite as detailed like if i'm sketching mars well my sketch of mars at 14 arc seconds it might be the same size like quote unquote size in my sketchbook is at 17 arc seconds just because i i might not bother uh, to differentiate the size so much as as the details um that i see so hopefully that's not like disappointing for anybody or you Shane. <laughs> no no you know it, th- these are interesting questions to me because everybody has their own approach to how they use some of this information and how it fits their style of observing so you know if we had three other people on the podcast i bet we would get three more variations on how this information is used and how it benefits folks while they observe yeah now north south east and west um these are used in uh, in quite a bit more of a practical way, at least for me at the eyepiece. But uh, maybe I'll just uh, let you uh, dive into uh, his part about uh, using uh, them to determine the direction something is in the eyepiece um, and, and such. Shane, what do, what do your uh, what do you want to say about these cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west? I don't, I don't have a lot to say about them because I honestly don't consider them all that much when I'm observing, uh, mm-hmm. again, just how I observe and how I use information. Um, they don't factor in too much. Um, the one thing I will say is just knowing your, your telescope and how it flips all of that around sometimes yeah. <laughs> the eyepiece can be a little confusing, you know, like a Dobsonian, everything is basically reversed and, uh, you know, a refractor, the left, right is reversed. So yeah. You know, it's just understanding that. Um, and then, you know, if, if uh, you do want to use the cardinal directions, um, you know, just being aware of those factors. Yeah. I, for me, I keep meaning to put them into my sketches um, mm, yeah. and I'm not doing that. And uh, it's one thing I keep meaning to do so that typically people will mark at, at the very least West and, and North. Um, so you can get an idea of sort of which side is which and uh speaking of witches the one thing that really made me think of it is when i was sketching the witch head nebula so i suppose for like the brighter objects in my mind anyway it's like well it doesn't really matter that much i think if people are that interested to look at one of my sketches they're probably uh knowledgeable enough to sort of make a determination of of uh 
of how this looks maybe compared to an image or their own observation of it or something like that. But when it comes to something like the Witch Head Nebula that maybe um, many people haven't observed or not as many people have observed as something like uh, when I was sketching NGC 253 and 288, which are the uh, galaxy and globular cluster combo there in, in, uh, in or near Cetus, or I guess they're in Sculptor. Um, anyway, they're below Cetus and Sculptor. Uh, but when I'm sketching something really sort of uh, challenging and difficult, like the witch head, then probably putting in those directions because I did take the sketch and then I made a good copy of the sketch. And then afterwards, kind of once I was all sitting down, I really should have marked like west and north. And that would have orientated people a little bit better and maybe given people a better idea of, of what you could see at the IP. So so I, I think that's what I was thinking about in the past um few episodes and i think maybe uh kind of like the listeners start to get to know us a bit shane i think you've had this experience as well and they're mm -hmm. kind of able to distill out a question um of something that uh, that we've been kind of rolling over in in our minds so yeah i should be using those um a little bit more than i than i have been simply just to make uh, my sketches uh more clear and then to give an, an indication of of uh, where the brighter and, and fainter areas are maybe for people who uh who would like to go and make those sort of observations themselves or, or just to make it clear when people are, are reading my sketch, because when I'm actually observing and, and doing those, and, and this is just the way that I observe, it might not be the way you observe Shane or, or the next person is going to observe. Like you were saying, yes, mm -hmm. three different people are going to get three different answers, but um, I do go through and kind of worry about those um, cardinal points uh, quite a bit more when I'm actually doing uh, the sketches and the observations uh, through the eyepiece. Um, just to make sure I'm giving an accurate portrayal, uh, but then I'm not actually putting them in my sketch. And I'm like, I really have to start doing that because I'm putting in all this work. And I mean, it's not like anybody's paying me for this or I'm getting a critical evaluation or anything, mm -hmm. but I do put in a lot of work determining those at the eyepiece and making sure that, uh, that I'm kind of getting things oriented properly when I'm doing the sketch. Um, and then I'm just not putting them in. So I really probably should be because I do spend a fair bit of time on the cardinal directions um, versus uh, worrying too much about the degrees, minutes uh, or seconds of arc and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I, that all makes sense to me. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so we really appreciate that uh, that question, Clint, or, or I guess um, suggestion for for a bit of a, a bit of a show uh, segment. I, I thought it would work out well because. We had another couple uh, questions there, Shane, about uh, powers at, at the eyepiece. And so mm -hmm. um, what I did is I put in the two emails um, from, from listeners, and they um, we really appreciate this. Um, now, Clint has certainly written me some, some longer emails. We've had a lot of exchange, and that's, that's great, and I appreciate that. Uh, so it worked really well to put in his shorter email here. The other two ones go into quite a bit of a detail on power, but maybe before we get into power, let's just talk very briefly and just off the top of our heads about apparent field of view versus true field of view when it comes to uh, eyepieces, Shane. So if if I say I have a 50 degree uh, plossal eyepiece um, or a 100 degree uh, ethos eyepiece or a 70 degree uh, Pentax eyepiece, uh, what does that uh, mean exactly, Shane? What, what are we talking about there when we talk about apparent field of view? Yeah, so the, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way I interpret this is it's um, it's in relationship to like your your naked eye field of view almost. Yeah. Um, like 
the human eye, when you look forward, you're seeing about like a 70, uh, I believe it's about a 70 degree field of view is kind of the average. So when you then hear a plossal that has a 50 degree field of view, um, now you can maybe imagine like your 70 degree field of view that you see right now will be less, like it'll be restricted. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the other side of that, if you have one of these 100 degree uh, field of view eyepieces, uh, it means that when you're looking through that eyepiece, you're going to have to look like move your eye to look around that mm-hmm. entire field that you, if you're just looking straight ahead, your eye won't take in all of that because it's mm-hmm. just too wide. So mm-hmm. essentially that's the apparent field of view to give you an indication of what the experience will be like, just based on kind of what you're used to seeing every day with your eyes. That's perfect. And, and I'm just going to, I'm going to build on it, but that's exact. If I was asked that, I would have said exactly the same thing. And then um, just to kind of uh, spell it out for maybe people that, that don't know, or haven't thought about this before. If you, if you're looking straight ahead at say a line on the wall, okay, we're going to say that that's your zero point. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then um, we talk about your fist at arm's length being 10 degrees. So if you hold your fist out and you went three and a half fists on, on one side and then three and a half fists on the other side, that's going to give you your 70 degrees. Okay. Yep. And if you went all the way to your extreme uh, left so that your arm was straight out, and then you went all the way to your extreme right so that your arm was you know straight out to your right, um, that would give you 90 degrees on either side. So, you know, you could sort of in a way like theoretically have this 180 degree field of view near your Nagler hundred or some of these 110 or 120 degree eyepieces, they're, they're going to fall, um, you know, somewhere just a little bit less of that, but it gives you an idea of just that pure naked eye expanse mm-hmm. um, that Shane referred to. So just uh, any comments on that, just, just to kind of give people a way to kind of look at that sort of naked eyes or maybe sitting there listening to this episode. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. And, uh, so everybody is different. So I know for me, when the ethos eyepieces were first coming out, I remember Tom Truscott who, uh, who was on uh, Claudia Nates and, and unfortunately he's passed away. Um, he was bringing one up to Starfest, and I lived in Ontario at the time and, and, uh, actually made arrangements to go down and, and observe with him a little bit as did like about a hundred other people, I think. And cause it was one of the first, uh, Tel Aviv ethos that were coming out. And I was so excited because I was just getting ready to buy, like I'd saved up, um, some money, like, I think like a thousand dollars or so. Mm-hmm. And I was ready to buy either a couple ethos eyepieces or a whole pile of Pentax eyepieces. And uh, cause I think I could get three Pentax eyepieces for the cost of two ethos. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do here? And then he was bringing it up. So I was like, am I going to keep saving and, and maybe get three ethos eyepieces? Could I use them with glasses? And um, there was a couple things of note. Everybody really is different and as excited as I was and so eager to uh, to be placing my order for the Televi ethos eyepiece. Um, it just didn't work for my eye. I was I, I thought the view was spectacular when I had my glasses off. I could only get about 60 or 65 degrees with my glasses on. And uh, it just didn't work well for my eye. Um, Very cool field of view. But I thought, well, uh, I'm spending a lot of extra money for a field of view that I can't fully Mm -hmm. uh, take in or or appreciate. I'm kind of doing a a disservice to to the design. And so I end up uh, going going and buying a few more Pentax eye pieces um, instead. 
and uh, just didn't know if you had any similar experiences, Shane, or any comments on that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, my experience was quite similar. Um, a friend, um, this is, uh, I can't remember how many of the ethoses he had, but I, it may have been all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was super excited to look through them because um, I had been, this was quite a long time ago, but I had been kind of used to the Plossel experience because that's how I started. And then I moved into some uh, the Spears Waller eyepieces that you and I have talked yeah. about that were in the, I don't know, low eighties or mid 80, uh, 80 degree like field of views. Yeah. And they were quite nice. And yeah. uh, I just thought more is better. Right. So if there's a hundred degrees out there, that's, that's better. Yeah. Um, but I didn't enjoy the experience because I felt like I didn't know where to look. I was just looking all around this star field and it was kind of interesting, but it really made me realize that my sweet spot for field of view, similar to you, Chris, is uh, I like the 70 degrees, which is yeah. why I think I love the panoptics. You know, they're 68 degrees. Yep. Um, and it's just because I think that's my natural field of view. So when I'm looking yeah. through that eyepiece, it's just all there. And I almost get, you know, again, personal preference. This is just me. But when I'm yep. looking through an 80 plus degree field of view, I feel like it's wasted space because I'm not looking yeah. there anymore. Um, so that's just me. I know a lot of people love those eyepieces and that's awesome because the yeah. views that they provide is, is amazing. Um, and I, you know, I still occasionally think about getting one of these hundred yeah. degree fields. I know. Yeah. 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 I'm always intrigued, uh, especially yeah. like, um, the Nikon HWs, you know, yeah. the, the 17 millimeter and the yeah. 12 millimeter. I, I think, yeah. you know, that's pretty intriguing, but I, uh, you know, because of how much I just enjoyed the 70 degree field of view, I, I just don't feel compelled to, um, make that big investment. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the other thing is, and you, you sort of noted it here a little bit more than I did is that, um, we do have friends and other observers that we go out with from time to time who do have the, uh, I know like uh, Rick has the 17 millimeter uh, ethos and uh, when he's got that in his 10 inch telescope, like I'm, I'm like the first person there to look through it. So mm-hmm. I don't want people to think I have anything against these eyepieces or anything. It just, when it came down to laying down my, my hard earned money myself, um, I sort of had to make a, a call on, on what was going to work best for me uh, most of the time. And that's just my own personal thing. And then um, like one of the other eyepieces that it really like almost broke my heart not to go and try to track down it as a used item is the um, Nagler 20 millimeter T5, which is one of my favorite all time eyepieces. However, I had to use it with my glasses off. And I have to kind of be honest that with my, my astigmatism in all of my telescopes, it, it's not as sharp because of my eye, not because of the eyepiece. I feel like that's one of the best, um, most perfect all round deep sky observing eyepieces in, in my own personal opinion, but it just didn't quite work for my eyes. So when it came time for me to actually buy something, I ended up getting the 22 Nagler T4, which I really, really like. And I, I think it's like as close as I can get uh, to that experience, but with my glasses on. So mm. that that's a great eyepiece, but it, it was, it, it took me years to make that decision and get off the fence. And right. it's actually through our discussions here on this podcast, which kind of, you know, sort of tipped my hat and finally said, okay, I'll just get the 22 and call it a, cause Mike has the T5 actually. And this is like sort of a bit of a joke, but I love that IP so much that there was many nights where I would borrow it from Mike. And then the next day he would come and say, 
could I get my eyepiece back? And I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I was like, for real thought I had given it back, <laughs> but I had actually like left it um, with my gear and, you know, um, are you sure I have a kind of thing? And yes, you have it, you know, give my eyepiece back and be like, literally like looking, oh, I'm like really surprised that, oh, I do have it. Right. So, but that's, that's how much I, I really do like that eyepiece. But if I was an observer that didn't need glasses, I would hunt down the 20 millimeter Nagler and the 26 millimeter T4, I think it's a T5 Nagler. Yeah, they're both T5. And those are such beautiful eyepieces. And I really, really enjoy them out of all the eyepieces um, that don't work well for me as a glasses wearer. Um, those, boy, those are such, such great eyepieces. Anyway, so we talked about apparent field of view. Now, true field of view, Shane, is pretty basic. So once you, you can do calculations and people can look it up, but um, basically with any given eyepiece that has an apparent field of view, you can, you can use that apparent field of view or field stop diameter and do the calculation of, I always like to do field stop uh, diameter. So for example, uh, with my Pentax uh, uh, 40 millimeter XW, it's got a 46 millimeter field stop. Uh, so if you divide that by the focal length of your telescope, uh, like my seven a 40 millimeter telescope, and then you multiply it by uh, 57.3, which I think is uh, radian, um, then that will give you like your true actual field of view. And someone does that, they'll see it gives me like 3.3 something or 3.4 something. Basically, I call it like a three and a half degree field of view because there's some margin of errors there and uh, doesn't really doesn't really matter that much to get 0.1 uh, or 0.2 degree field of view, uh, more or less when you're when you're getting uh, three and a half degrees. Thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, really nothing else to add on that. Um, you, I think you covered that one well, yeah. Yeah, so people can use different calculations. Some people will just simply take, uh, I think, like uh, the apparent field of view divided by magnification or something like that. That can give you some wacky answers. So I think it's always best to find out the field stop diameter of your eyepieces and then do that calculation. But for example, on my um, 22 Nagler T4, and my, um, I think it's like a 500 millimeter focal length in my comic catcher, whatever it is. Uh, mm -hmm. If you do that calculation anyway, you'll, you'll get um, about another three and a half uh, degree true field of view. So with a different telescope, like my um, 740 millimeter refractor with the Pentax with a 46 millimeter field stop and a 70 degree apparent field of view, it will give me the same true field of view as my comic catcher with the Nagler uh, 22 in it, even though these are different eyepieces, different designs, completely different telescopes. One's a Schmidt-Newtonian, one's a refractor, different focal lengths. You can kind of uh, do the calculations yourself and work work that out to figure out what your low power field uh, field of view is going to be. And then with uh, your higher powers, um, actually don't worry as much about my true field of view uh, with the higher powers, but I do enjoy those 70 or 80 degree uh, fields like we talked about. I've been going on too much. Shane, maybe I'll just turn it over to you to read our email here um, from listener. Did I not put who wrote this email? Mm. I think I messed up. But. Yeah, no, no problem. I'll, uh, I'll just start reading it here if that's yeah. all right. Yeah. Um, so, hey, Chris and Shane, uh, I'm just listening to your uh, email episode where you talk about, among other things, Jupiter observing. 
Uh, now that I'm transitioning out of ATM mode uh, and into visual mode, I'm really interested in a lot of the topics you are presenting. I was especially interested in the comment made by Chris, I think, uh, that the optimal magnification for Jupiter is around 150 times. Uh, that is encouraging because when I generally try to crank it to my maximum of 210 times with a five millimeter Nagler, I am often disappointed. Uh, now observing from Mississauga is often a fool's errand, but I try, or I, but I do it. I do try in vain to see details, but isn't 150 times pretty small to see significant details like swirls you were mentioning, or is that level of detail reserved for those exceptional nights with much higher power? Um, that said, I have been experimenting with some imaging in support of outreach that I eventually want to do after a few nights of practice, I was really stoked to get this image and, uh, he attached, uh, I think an image of Jupiter and that was yep. from Tom. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, uh, just when I put these emails in, sometimes it, it shoves it down. And then for some reason, Tom, your name disappeared from that one. As soon as Shane started reading, it was like, oh, it's Tom's email. I knew it, uh, just based on our, our other correspondence. So Tom is an amateur telescope maker. He's got a beautiful 14 inch F 2.6. And, uh, and he and my, um, one of my former observing buddies from, uh, Ontario, they're going to be on the show. We'll record on November 6th. So, um, yeah, so 150 power. Yes. That's kind of where I've been observing Jupiter a lot of the time. Maybe I'm going to say this first off Shane, maybe this would be a controversial thing, but, I often don't worry about the power that much. Often what I do is I've got, um, right now my eyepiece case, I have my five millimeter Pentax, my seven millimeter Pentax, and often I have my 12.5 millimeter Doctor. And um, I've got a couple Barlows in there right now. I have a 1.6 and a 2X Barlow in there now, and my 3X might be in there as well. So often when I'm planetary observing, um, I'll just play around with the combination of these eyepieces and my Barlows and find out what sticks and sort of a terrible person because sometimes I don't even know what power I'm using. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you've kind of had that experience as well, because sometimes I'm just, yeah, if I'm doing a sketch or something, I will, um, I will put the power that I'm using in my sketch. And so the ones that I was doing recently were 150 power, but then earlier in the summer, I wasn't sketching as much and I have like no idea what power I was, I was using there for probably two months. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, not the, the we're, we're similar again in this regard. I don't often pay attention to what the actual magnification is. Um, I start with low power, like I mentioned, and if it's planetary observing, then I just go as, as uh, powerful as I can. So mm -hmm. um, typically this is how, so this is with the TAC TSA 102. So it has an 816 uh, millimeter focal length. So I usually start with some uh, 25 millimeter eyepieces. So that is about 32 times, you know, I'll mm -hmm. get centered and everything like that. Then I usually go from uh, 25 millimeter uh, down to 12 millimeter. So now mm -hmm. I'm at 68 times. And this okay. starts to give me a bit of an idea of how good or how bad the seeing is that night. And I, you know, I think that the real reason you mentioned 150 times is because that's usually all the atmosphere will allow. Yeah. 
Um, you know, to go beyond that, you usually need one of those nights of, uh, above average or, you know, getting to those really good nights of seeing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, from, you know, my 12 millimeter eyepiece, assuming things are pretty sharp at that point, uh, I usually will go down to eight millimeters, uh, which is 102 times in that telescope. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if things are really still pretty solid and I'm enjoying the views, then I drop down to six millimeter, which is about 136 times. And usually I'm not even getting that far, you know, some nights, yeah. uh, you do, but like I find in that 120 to basically 140 times, that's where I top out most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I've even, even those nights, if I can hold those magnifications, I find I still sometimes prefer the lower magnification views. Mm-hmm. Um, now certainly the image is smaller, but I feel like sometimes I can see more because I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, magnifying all of those negative atmospheric effects. Mm-hmm. So again, that's just me. Um, now, you know, he mentions, um, about the size, what was this here? Uh, but isn't 150 times pretty small to see significant details like swirls you were mentioning. Um, and he has a 14 inch telescope. Is that correct? Yeah. He's got a 14. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's fast, but, uh, you know, um, those fast scopes, certainly, uh, I've looked through some of them and, uh, you know, uh, people like Tom who are grinding their own mirrors, uh, making exquisite telescopes that can mm-hmm. certainly handle. And they're, they're, even though they're fast telescopes that, uh, can be used for wide field and portability, uh, often they're extremely good, uh, planetary instruments as well. So. Yeah. The, the only thing I might suggest, which we've talked about before would be uh, like a neutral density filter. Mm. Um, like when I had my 12 inch light bridge, I just found, I couldn't really see much detail on Jupiter outside of the equatorial, uh, bands. It was just yeah. too bright. Like, uh, I, I, like the, the big mirror just pulled in too much. And I think yeah, it washed point. out a lot of the subtle features. And like, yeah. when we're talking about swirls, when we're talking about irregularity in any of these cloud bands, and then even seeing some of the other uh, like temperate belts and all of the, like there's a lot of other belts and bands to see to get to that. Those are subtle. And uh, I just find too much light can wash that out. I even find sometimes with the four inch tack that it almost pulls in too much light Mm -hmm. uh, for Jupiter at times. Um, So you know, again, your mileage may vary. That's my two cents in terms of, uh, my experiences. Yeah. Um, so typically I'm using 150 right now. I've been doing a lot of observing just from my deck and people might say, isn't it unstable? My deck is not that unstable. I had it rebuilt this year <laughs> for observing on by, uh, by a local, uh, uh, carpenter. And, uh, he's an amazing, uh, person and, uh, and actually built it for me to do astronomy from, so like if you come to my deck and uh, I think you've seen this as well, I have like extra handles so that when like me or Shane or whoever's out there is going up and down the stairs at night, there's like an extra handle, which is where your hand is going to fall at night. It looks kind of funny in the day. It's like what it looks like, almost like an accessibility handle. And I guess it is. And because mm-hmm. that's how that's what he did is he put like an accessibility handle on it so that when we're going up and down the steps at night, um, that's where you're going to grab onto just, just like maybe somebody that has uh, mobility challenges. Cause kind of in a way, um, when you're operating at night, um, we are all a little bit mobility challenged, or at least I am anyway. So, um, it, it works out really, really well. It's very safe and stable. And then he regrounded and put extra supports underneath the deck. So 
Uh, whereas my deck at home, anything over but 100 magnification is an absolute nightmare. Um, so I can only like do some deep sky from my deck. Um, that deck out of my uh, observing site is good up to 150 power. Anything over 150 power can feel a little bit shaky, but 150 power, I'm totally fine. And the other thing I should add, this is really, really key. And I, sh I don't know if I mentioned this in my reply to Tom. So my apologies if I didn't. But um, when I'm doing planetary observing, like really dedicated sketching and a lot of dedicated planetary observing, I'm in my observing chair. And I've got a beautiful burlapack chair with a padded seat that I keep inside. I just take out when I'm observing and it's warm and the chair is warm. The air is cold. It's been cold some mornings. And so um, I get a really good, I, I'm getting all that 150 power can give me when I'm sitting in that chair and I'm comfortable and I'm able to be in my place where it's warm, come out and observe um, while I'm warm and not freezing and do my sketch. Even if it's like minus six or minus seven, I'm totally comfortable. Um, so I'm, I'm just set up in a very specific way to kind of get everything out. If I just had taken my telescope out somewhere plunked it down. I'm standing. I've got the telescope tripod really high. My tracking isn't working and I'm freezing cold. Yeah, I'm going to struggle to see those details. But the details that I'm seeing are a result of all this other prep work that has gone into it. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, let's see. Yeah. But for example, seeing all those bands and belts in Jupiter into the North Polar, South Polar regions and all the tropical and South, South tropical and North, North tropical banding and the moons being superposed on, on top of the bands and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that's all pretty, I find that all fairly easy at 150. Uh, I'm pretty experienced planetary observer at this point in my life. I've been doing it for more than 30 years, I think, or close to it. So, um, so that plays into it as well. I think with a 14 inch scope, like Shane was saying, maybe like a neutral density filter, like a pretty good one, maybe like a 25%. I've got one from Lumicon that I really like quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I really think like your 14 inch should, should be running like 300 power on, on Jupiter. Even I think you, uh, you might find on the good nights, those can do it. And then I'm able to pick and choose the nights cause I'm able to be out there sort of, I'm out there more than half the, half of the time during, um, the warmer months. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm able to say, okay, I'm out here for three nights. I might get one night in. So I'm not uh, just observing on like the good weekend nights or, or something like that. Of course that, that always works out a little better, but you know, um, a lot of Friday mornings, um, Thursday mornings, that sort of thing. Um, I'll stay out there. I'll get up at three o'clock in the morning. I'll observe, go back to bed for another hour and then drive an hour to work. So, it, you know, I'm, I'm doing that as well. And then the other thing I should mention this is I pick that spot that I observe at I picked that spot for observing. It just happens to have an old cabin on it and it works out good for, for our purposes, uh, for, for my wife and I, um, for other things as well. It's a, it's a, it's a great spot, but it's surrounded by uh, trees. It's got a field to the North, which is fine. You don't want your field to your South. There's a field to the North. The wind blows from that direction. My scene can be somewhat variable, but to the South, it's virtually all trees, the odd other cabin. Um, and then there's a lake, and that's a huge stabilizing force out there because as the temperature drops at night, that lake retains a little bit of heat and it shuts down the convection. And so um, I basically, if I'm observing, it's a pretty rare night that I can't do 150 power. And I think you even saw this when you were out this year, Shane, we were running 
200 power, whatever it was on Jupiter. We had no problem running 200 power on Jupiter. That was a pretty good night there that you were out though, but mm-hmm. I do get pretty mm-hmm. good seeing out there. Yeah. I think you've seen it. It's, it's a pretty good spot for observing. Yeah, for sure it is. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So I mentioned the chair. That's, that's another big thing. And then, yeah, uh, telescopes that are bigger can take a while, a lot longer to cool. Like I know um, sometimes I'd have my five inch set up and I'd be on Jupiter and Mike would swing out and plop down his 12 inch. And uh, 15 minutes later, we're, we're observing it after he gets it optically aligned and everything. And it can take a long time for that telescope to settle to the point where it's giving uh, equal images. Of course, once it's fully cooled, you, I found the uh, the more subtle details like the great red spot are much much easier in the 12 inch it just took a lot longer for it for it to get there so uh that is one of those things to to think about as well yeah no that makes sense all right uh michael roach shall i read michael's yeah go for it yeah we'll read this um so michael wrote uh hello chris shane uh sorry for the long-winded email no problem at all we love getting long emails that's what it's what it's all about um i've been meaning to write for a while and just keep having more and more to write about. I uh, discovered your podcast over the summer right before I went to my parents' place at Christina Lake, BC, which is at the altitude of a thousand meters. And uh, and I guess uh, on th- 83 acres of land with phenomenal uh, southern exposure and no visible light domes. And, I, and I'd written him back to say, yeah, I've been to Christina Lake. I, I stopped in there uh, once when I was going to Mount Coba Star Party. Um, he says they are the darkest skies I've ever seen. Uh, was right after episode 239 on observing on observing dark nebula. I've been imaging for about five years now and have recently started enjoying visual observing more and more. And he sent us this beautiful uh, dark uh, nebula photo. It's just like super three-dimensional and uh, an amazing, amazing photograph. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, I did a bit as a kid, but I'm rediscovering it as it were and really enjoying observing. This is my first summer uh, really focusing on the visual side of things, uh, but he still uh, uh, did imaging, of course, uh, but my setup is completely automated. So once it's going, it's fine to be left on its own and then he can go off and do some visual. After listening to the episode, it inspired me to give Dark Nebula Observing a shot. I was using my MacNute 190, which is a Skywatcher. Um, this is the one with the original small secondary and the views through it are spectacular. He says that he would put it up against a seven inch apochromatic refractor any day. And that at F 5.3, it is a fairly fast photon collector. This is one of, we were talking before the show about telescopes that I want to get that I, you know, there's too many telescopes. Mm-hmm, we were talking mm-hmm. about the Takahashi CN 212. Well, the Skywatcher 190, um, the older one, like uh, he has with the smaller secondary and 5.3. This is another one of those. They, those would be really beautiful telescopes to have set up in tandem because the TAC CN212 would be like sort of the ultimate planetary telescope and the uh, Skywatcher 190 Mac Newt would be sort of like an ultimate uh, wide field, uh, sort of uh, nice planetary as well. Uh, you know, be neat to just, just have those two set up side by side. So anyway, he goes on to say, I went out one evening with my sister and we bombed around Sagittarius, Scorpius, and Ophiuchus for a while, sweeping what the core of our Milky Way had to offer, and they were stunned by what they could see, then set out for Aquila, and the real target of the night was Barnard's E. After a bit of hunting around, I spotted it, a dark horseshoe-shaped void across a densely packed star field. 
using a panoptic 24 millimeter in the Mac mute. It fit nicely uh, with a 41.7X and a 1.63 degree true field of view. I'm not sure if I could tease out the disconnected lower part of the E, but did clearly see the aforementioned upper horseshoe shape. Uh, now I'm hooked on visual, uh, now I'm more hooked on visual than ever. Uh, this fall from the heart of Vancouver metropolitan area where I live, I've been doing a lot of planetary observing with a recently acquired 127 millimeter Skymax uh, Max suit off from Skywatcher and the surprisingly solid AZ GTI mount. Yeah, that's a beautiful combination. They sell that as a package deal. It's turned into telescope lives beside my back door as within 10 minutes of taking it out and setting it up on my back porch. I'm ready for observing. I've been doing a lot of Saturn and Jupiter and have recently been getting up early for Mars and depending on the phase swinging over to the moon now and again, I usually use a Della 6mm on it for 250x magnification and the planets are all stunning uh, provided the air is being cooperative. I always wonder when Chris is talking about his sketches uh, or either of you are talking about observing, um, what power are you typically at? I'm curious, especially after seeing some of Chris's sketches, what your observing magnification is. Um, one other thing I keep hearing you both lament is an easy way to look up transits in Jupiter. I was screaming at the radio on the way home today as you were discussing in episode 266. I use Skysphere, and you both mentioned um, it, but now that you mentioned my favorite features, once you have Jupiter selected, you tap on the selection button, and that looks like a hand, and its finger is extended, and you go to uh, object info, it gives you the upcoming events for our Jovian friend, including the GRS transits and moon transits and occultations for the time that you're set up and using the app uh, localized for you. And by the time I set in the app, I mean, you can use it to look ahead and do planning just by changing the apparent time in Skysphere. It's been an awesome tool. Uh, as I said before, I'm an imager at heart. If you guys are interested, I share my shots on Instagram under at Pale Blue Astro. So if anybody wants to check out uh, Michael's uh, images, and they are beautiful images, let me tell you, you should check Michael mm -hmm. out at Pale Blue Astro. I don't mind if you mention the handle on the show and wouldn't be offended. Um, uh, I've also included an image uh, while I was working on Barnard Z. It's another um, dark object from the Barnard catalog, Barnard 150 called the Seahorse Nebula. And usually when I have the opportunity of truly dark skies, I like to go after these so-called dark nebula. I want to say thanks for helping me in my journey on visual astronomy. And I'm always looking forward to the next episode. I'll leave you with a pun entry. Space was cool before it mattered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 His images are fantastic. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely check out uh, his website there. Um, it, yeah. It's uh, Instagram at pale. Or yeah. Instagram. Yeah. Pale Blue Astro at Pale Blue Astro uh, is Michael's uh, Instagram there. People should check it out. The uh, image of the Seahorse Nebula, uh, 150 there. I think it's up in Cephas or just off Cephas. Um, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Just like three-dimensional almost, eh? Like I felt mm -hmm. like when I was looking at the image, you know, I, I know we mostly do visual here, but I love looking at people's astro images. So people shouldn't read us wrong there. And Shane's certainly taken a few uh, nice wide field shots. But I found with his um, dark nebula shot, you could like, it's almost like you could see around the edge of it, right? It was like floating there in, in mm -hmm. space in his photograph, just uh, just a real beautiful uh, photograph. So yeah, he kind of asked the same question about uh, what powers we use and, you know, uh, what helps us see what, what, we're, uh, what we're observing. 
Uh, and, and again, I think the big thing is um, being comfortable. I observe like dressing warm and having an observing chair, having the observing chair is huge. Mm-hmm. Like we, we talk about this and seldom do people write and say that they were using their observing chair. And it always makes me a little bit nervous because my observations with an observing chair are, it's just like, it's almost like if you could buy like a better eyepiece, a better filter, a better telescope, a better tripod that's more stable. Like everything is just better when you're using a really good dedicated observing chair. And uh, I, I can't express that enough. Sometimes people say, really, you can see that 150 power, whatever it is. Have you, have you tried an observing chair? Like that is definitely a thing to do. I'd be curious. I feel like Tom maybe already has one because he's an amateur telescope maker. If not, I'd be fascinated to see what he could, he could create for an observing chair. It's probably uh, better than than the next one that I bought from Berlebach. But uh, I, I think the chair is is among the last thing that people get that's going to give them the greatest benefit for their observing. Uh, what are your comments on that statement, Shane? Yeah, the only thing I'll add to that is if anybody is interested in bino viewing or has tried bino viewing and maybe got frustrated with not being able to merge images, um, one of the key things is making sure that your eyes are perfectly uh, like aligned to the bino viewer. If you're kind of viewing at a bit of an angle or moving around a bit, it can be a greater challenge to merge the two images. Um, so being seated when bino viewing is almost a requirement in my opinion. So I thought I'd throw that out there for any potential bino viewers out there. Um, like when I try to stand in bino view, it's not a fun experience at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, good. and support everything else you said, Chris, like it, I just see so much more when I'm seated. Uh, and also uh, for me, I can observe way longer with a chair. Like that was one of the primary things. My back would start to tighten up and sometimes my feet would get sore from standing. Uh, so I might only observe for a couple of hours, but now I just like my body does not limit my observing anymore. It's really just my alertness now, (laughs) you know, I'm starting to fall asleep. That's the end of the observing session now. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes one thing people might ask, you know, what makes this an observing chair over just, just some other type of chair or whatever, but at least for my chair. Um, and like I said, I have one of the Burla back. What is it? It's a Hydra two. It's the shorter one. They make a taller one. In fact, um, if I ever get my observatory together, I will get the taller one as well. It just weighs a few pounds more. Yeah. Um, that, that's the so. one that I have. And it, I think it's the one I have anyway, that you're referring to the Saturn maybe, but doesn't matter. Yeah. They're all, they're all sort of a little bit their own. You can sort of, they make a whole pile of different ones. You can buy one just that's going to suit you best. I think yours is a slightly taller one because Shane's a a significantly taller person than I am. Um, But the one thing that you're going to notice with all these, these dedicated observing chairs is they're really only just good for observing (laughs) because Mm -hmm. They have, they're sort of tilted forward a bit, eh? And that's so that you um, are able to get over the eyepiece without arching your back. And just like what you were saying, Shane, um, if you try to use, if you try to just stand because the way that we're like, usually we're going to try to stand straight and then you've got to kind of arch your back in this weird way. um, You can, although I find standing doesn't really bother my back or feet too much. It's just, you're not as stable, right? It just, just inherently you aren't as stable and it is just a little bit more comfortable to be seated. Um, and especially if you are trying to do uh, planetary and sketching, trying to stand, 
keep your eye over the eyepiece and then try to look back and forth while you're sketching um, seems like a bit of a juggling act, whereas just sort of sitting in the chair with your sketch pad, just resting on your legs and then just sort of looking at the eyepiece, then looking down um, can be, uh, can be a little bit of an easier uh, experience, I think anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they're, they're designed for it. So they look like just like a stool or something. And you might think, why is this thing so expensive? Well, they're going to be designed so that they don't drop you out. I know some of the cheaper ones used to dump people on the ground periodically and I didn't want one of those. And then I wanted one that I could adjust almost infinitely in height. I'm really picky about where I am. Some of them um, don't have as much in the way of adjustment and you can only adjust them. I don't know, every five or six inches or even further. Um, and the one that I have, I can adjust it. I think it's about two and a half millimeters difference between adjustment points. Maybe not even that it might be just two millimeters. So I can adjust it exactly for where I want to be. Um, so I'm adjusting the chair without having to mess with the telescope. Cause it really sucks. You get the planet in there and everything, and you're running at like 300 power or something. And then, Oh, the chair is off by half an inch or something. You don't want to, you don't want to have to try to adjust the tripod height or something. I don't know what you would do. So you just want to be able to scooch that chair up or down uh, that half inch. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. It uh, can make a big difference. Actually. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it, uh, it can really impact your enjoyment. Oh, for sure. For sure. So I made a whole pile of other notes just in case, um, but maybe we'll put these um, in some of our show notes for, for next week, talk a little bit more about uh, telescope powers and mm -hmm. uh, what Rory Bishop uh, says in the uh, RESC Observer's Handbook. But if people want to, to know more about uh, telescope powers and uh, how they can be used, uh, you can read the RESC Observer's Handbook on pages 50 through 53. There's an article there by Roy Bishop. And then as well, another good resource is uh, Paul Abel, or Abel um, from the UK. He's got a really good book on visually observing planets. And he also talks about using like 150 uh, and greater powers on uh, on Jupiter, you know, depending on your instrument size and, and that sort of thing. So it was funny, I had the question from Tom there on 150 power. And then um, I just happened to be reading this section on Jupiter the following uh, night and sure enough, uh, uh, Paul uh, Apple mentions that as well. So um, seems to be kind of something that uh, that we all sort of discover one way or another. Okay, and with that, Shane, I'll see if you have any other comments, and maybe we can just end it there. Yeah, I think it's time to sign off. Thanks, Chris. All right, thanks, uh, Shane. Thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to submit your observations to actualastronomy at gmail .com. and we're still going to take our astronomy puns and jokes in from you, the listeners, until the 5th of November, uh, and then we'll figure out who we're going to give a copy of Sue French's Deep Sky Wonders book off to. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>